Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, who are the Uyghurs and what is China accused of? For the past four weeks, the Good Information Project has been examining the current relationship between China and Ireland. The growing influence the superpower has on global trade and politics means it's an important country for a small, outward-looking island like ours. Indeed, as America looked at America first policies under Trump, the EU also looked more toward China. However, these relations are complex, some even more so than usual diplomacy accounts for. Over the last four weeks, the team of reporters, editors and contributors at the Great Information Project have come across the same themes and messages. Yes, there are concerns about China's human rights record, but at the end of the day, its importance as a trading partner is irrefutable and compromises will be looked for and found. The main allegations around human rights focus on a province in the northwest called Xinjiang, and that's where we'll be focusing our attentions today. But please check out all the rest of the work the Good Information Project team have been doing on the journal and its social media sites. I myself have learned a huge amount, not just about the domestic politics of China, the trade dealings with the EU, but also about its foreign diplomacy, the limitation of Ireland's seat on the UN Security Council, the rise of anti-Asian hate across the world, and also the ins and outs of having a Chinese identity in Ireland. Today though, as I said, we're focusing on Xinjiang, where most of the country's Uyghur Muslims live. Human rights groups believe China has detained more than 1 million Uyghurs over the past few years in what the state defines as re-education camps, but are known in headlines globally as internment camps. China says these camps are its way of dealing with separatism and Islamist militancy in the region. Who are the Uyghurs though? What do we know of their story and how does China react to countries such as US, Canada and the UK when they say that China is committing genocide and crimes against humanity? To answer those questions, I'm joined today by journalist Clifford Coonan. He is currently Berlin-based, but has spent 15 years as a correspondent in Beijing. Thanks, Clifford, for joining us on The Explainer. And just to bring it back to basics for our listeners, can you tell us who the Uyghur people are? Well, the Uyghurs are people who live in interior Asia, um, mostly in northwestern China, in a place that's called the Uyghur Autonomous Region of Xinjiang. And... um, in this area, which this region is surrounded by eight different countries. So it's right in the middle of Central Asia. And um, it's surrounded by borders with Mongolia, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan and India. So it's it's a real border country. Um, there's around 11 million Uyghurs living in China and then about 300,000 who live in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. But most most of the Uyghurs live in China. Um, and they're a Muslim, largely Muslim, and Islam is very important to their life and to their identity. And the language they speak is, is related to Turkish. Um, and they tend to identify themselves basically culturally and ethnically with, with Central Asian nations. So you, you mentioned it's a, an autonomous region there. What is China's relationship to Xinjiang? Well, Xinjiang is, is um, part of, of China as far as, uh, as far as Chinese sovereignty goes. Um, it's been intermittently autonomous and occasionally even independent over the years. But uh, what we now call Xinjiang basically came under Chinese rule in the 18th century. Um, in 1949, around the time of the revolution in China, there was East Turkestan was briefly declared, but um, but independence didn't last long. So since 1949, Xinjiang has been part of communist China. But the Uyghur people don't see themselves as Chinese necessarily. No, they're they're very um, ethnically and culturally they 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 share very little with the the Han Chinese who are the dominant ethnic group in China, um, and they feel themselves 
overrun by the Han Chinese, and they feel that the Han Chinese who uh, are, are trying to um, trying to destroy their culture. So um, they they would have very they have relatively they have very little in common with the Han Chinese. And so, what is life like for a Uyghur person in Xinjiang now? Well, at the moment, um, the, the situ it's quite it's rich in natural resources and oil, and um, but uh, it's generally very poor. Um, and it's um, the people there they sort of grew up around the oases there. It's desert country as well. Um, and life has become um, increasingly difficult. Um, Uyghurs you talk to over the years, I've talked to over the years, have said that they feel that their culture is under attack. It has the most surveillance of of, of any region probably in the world. It's um, there are cameras everywhere. There are a lot of controls. Um, there are soldiers everywhere. Um, so life is life is very tough for the Uyghurs. And then, of course, there are these internment camps, which have obviously gained a lot of headlines in the last couple of years. Yeah. We'll get onto that, but initially, why is China focusing on Uyghurs? Like, are they the only ethnic minority there, or the only ethnic minority in uh, Xinjiang? Like, what's the what's the focus on them? Where has that come from? Well, originally, um, for the longest time, the the Uyghurs were the main um, were the main ethnic group in Xinjiang, but in um, in recent years, there's been a lot of a large influx of Han Chinese, and a lot of this is because of the natural resources in in Xinjiang. Um, and that China is basically seeking to establish itself more, to establish central control from the center in Beijing, in Xinjiang. Um, and because it, 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 it's trying to clamp down on, on Uyghur culture, so um, it's been, um, this has been, this campaign then against the Uyghurs has been going on now for several years. It's all about establishing control um, and um, Xinjiang is also very much part of this, very central to this new Silk Road project, which is a Communist Party um, project aimed to establish influence and trade um, with um, along the old Silk Roads that used to run from, from Asia into Europe. So it's strategically a very important place. So it's very important that China, for China, that it has ultimate control there. And it feels that um, it needs to assert this control very strongly over the Uyghurs. Is there a religious aspect to it? You mentioned that the Uyghurs are, are Muslim. Is that part of why the government's focus um, has, you know, turned so strongly to them? Yeah, I mean, the fact that um, the fact that the Uyghurs are mostly Muslim has been a, a major part of um, of the crackdown, and it's been used as a major as a justification for the crack for the crackdown the china says the crackdown is necessary to prevent terrorism and to root out islamic extremism and um so the this doesn't sit easily with um chinese president xi jinping wants to promote han nationalism um and so this means suppressing ethnic cultural or religious identities that might compete with say the communist party so in a way that islam is seen as as competition for for the communist party so um, what that means then in practice is that they've they've introduced all these restrictions on on Islam in in Xinjiang using it started back um, after the war on terror back in the early noughties, uh, in the early 2000s, when they said um, they were basically cracking down the Uyghurs because they wanted to stop terrorism. Um, but since the war on terrorism has faded, um, it's it's turned into a sort of a domestic terrorism crackdown and Islamic fundamentalism is, is used as the excuse. So religion is is part of it. Definitely it's used as a justification for how, how China's behaving. 
if you can talk us through this surveillance aspect to people's lives um, in the region. Right. Well, surveillance is um, is is central to how how the Han or how um, the Communist Party exercises control in Xinjiang. Um, everywhere you go, there's there's checkpoints, um, there's facial recognition uh, cameras, which uh, which some even use racial profiling to. Um, it's sort of a form of racial profiling. Apparently, the technology is so sophisticated that they say they claim to be able to recognize Uyghur faces. Um, it's it's um, a lot of um, the security apparatus in China is very much focused on Xinjiang, and a lot of that is through the surveillance technology. Every aspect of daily life is monitored, um, and um, aside from the physical presence, you know, you see the soldiers everywhere. Uh, when you go there, the, it's it's just in every aspect of of people's lives. It's controlled with registration, constant registration, constant sort of checkpoints. Um, it's it's a fairly total and um, it's it's a massive system of control. Where does the Xinjiang government itself fit in? Then we talked a little bit about it being an autonomous region, and um, but obviously the control is coming from central government. Well. Autonomous region is is a political term in China for um, certain areas um, that are they are still very much directly under under central government control. Tibet is another autonomous region, for example, um, regions that that have historically been very different from the rest of China, but now are um, the Chinese government is trying to bring into the center. So, um, in fact, autonomous regions don't have have. Uh, have no autonomy as such. Um, in many ways, they get have even more control from from Beijing than um, maybe than some of the other provinces, because often um, there are separate what the Chinese see as separatist or splitist elements within them. So um, autonomy is autonomous region is supposed to give uh, some kind of separate identity to the to the people there, but in reality, uh, there's very little genuine autonomy. It's it's more about the strict. Um, control and the leaders you get in the autonomous regions tend to be sort of the the hard men, um, and I say man, man because they're always men, um, and um, it's they tend to be so some of the toughest and strictest leaders. And um, so the even though it's called autonomous, a few years ago, uh, Xi Jinping organized the strike hard campaign in in Xinjiang after a number of of, of attacks. And um, basically, so rather than autonomy, what you see is actually the opposite. Can you explain what, what you mean when you say that there was a number of attacks? There have been several um, terror attacks uh, at Kunming tra- train station. Um, there was a, um, in Yunnan province, there were um, a group of uh, Uyghur separatists attacked, attacked people there and there were a number of deaths. We've also, uh, another uh, Uyghur separatist drove a car into a crowd in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, um, and there have been other individual attacks on police stations in in Xinjiang. So this has been used as a pretext for a lot of this surveillance state, for a lot of these systems of control. Um, it's been this sort of crackdown on terror. A lot of this started after two thousand and nine, when there was um, there were uh, riots. Um, it was basically where the, the Uyghurs felt that after they'd had decades of institutionalized discrimination and marginalization and. So they took to the streets of Xinjiang capital and there were 200 people killed in clashes there. Um, most of them were supposedly Han. And um, so since then, tensions have really, really been very high. And um, that, although since then, there have been uh, relatively few incidents as well. Yeah, so that, that kind of leads us back to where 
a lot of the headlines come from the allegations of internment camps. Um, can you tell us a bit more of what you do know or even just about what we know about the allegations? Yeah, so, um, well, since since um, 2017, uh, many Uyghur detainees have been sent to, to these camps. Um, the figures started to emerge, or data or information started to emerge largely because of the work of individual researchers um, in, in the West uh, using satellite imagery who saw that they saw that these camps were suddenly appearing and then there were messages coming from overseas Uyghurs um, that that the Chinese government had introduced a series of internment camps. Um, now in these places the detainees are forced to learn Mandarin Chinese which is the main uh, the main dialect of Chinese um, and is very very different from Uyghur uh, which is as I was saying earlier is a Turkic, Turkish language. Um, they have to renounce extremism and they have daily indoctrination classes on Chinese uh, Communist Party propaganda. Um, so initially, the Chinese government denied that these camps existed. Uh, but then after people started, more and more people became interested in this and using satellite imagery and other, um, and other evidence were able to show that possibly around a million people or at least a million people are being held in these camps. So China admitted that they existed, but insisted they were vocational education and training centers, which meant that they uh, and they were saying that they were necessary, that they were trying to stop terrorism, and um, and and you know they were basically encouraging um, the development of Xinjiang. So uh, that that was where that's where the situation pretty much stands now. The rest of the world, many parts of the world, especially America. Um, in the U.S., they're saying that these camps are are forced detention centers in Xinjiang, whereas China says it's just trying to um, to train the Uyghurs. Yeah, it's very much a they said they said, and with reporting restrictions in the region, it can be difficult to um, you know provide hard evidence of the truth. Have you uh, reported from there? Have you spoken to people who have lived in these camps? Yeah, I mean, it's that's where a lot of recently um, the. A lot of people who've uh, relatives who have relatives in the camps, people Uyghurs who are living in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and other parts, um, have come forward with testimonies about what's going on at the camps. Uh, there's been allegations of torture, um, uh, sexual abuse, and um, it's been some pretty horrific accounts of what goes on in the in the camps. Um, China says the claims are exaggerated, but because China will not allow anyone in there um, to, to look at it, they're basically more say, kicking more foreign journalists out um, every day. So it's, um, it's getting harder and harder to get hard information from there or real information from there. Um, any trips into the see the camps would been, have been organized tours where everyone is happy and dancing. And, and we get a lot of footage of people dancing in, in Xinjiang. Um, but um, it's increasingly, uh, you know, the, in the West, the, the, theory, the opinion is that these camps are real um, and that, they, um, that terrible things are happening there. What was your experience of reporting from China like? Well, the surveillance, um, as, as a reporter in Xinjiang specifically, um, Xinjiang was unusual because um, even though it was quite a controversial story, uh, foreign journalists were still allowed to go there until quite recently whereas we weren't allowed to go to Tibet. But, uh, but once you did go to Xinjiang, you were suffered to, you, you, you had an awful lot of surveillance, um, some of it quite threatening, where the police would approach you and ask you if you feel safe. 
Um, it was um, it was really it was very very difficult to talk to anyone. People were people were afraid. Um, people were afraid of you as a because you're clearly a foreigner. Um, and it was uh, it was quite it was a very very challenging reporting environment. Um, we did get occasionally to speak to some people, and their accounts were um, um, basically they were saying that they felt that their their culture was being eroded. They wanted to leave. They um, they suffered daily abuse, um, uh, daily humiliation. Uh, their children weren't allowed to learn Uyghur languages at school, and um, and then people we've spoken to since who've been in the camps or whose relatives have been in the camps um, have have borne out the fact that the the fact that the situation is getting even worse in the last in the last couple of years. So um, overall, it's a very grim picture. What has been the cause of the deteriorating situation how come it has worsened in the last two years because we've seen obviously china on a real foreign diplomacy run um and as you mentioned the silk road uh, initiative what has been the the thinking behind why the crackdown has escalated in the last two years well i think china what china has done has basically brought down the shutters it's saying these are vocational education training centers and that's all they are um we don't have to answer to you and um, and then they've they've basically gone on the offensive, and they've used the weapon that the Chinese Communist Party always uses, which when dealing with the West, which is economic, and sort of said, if you if you keep asking us about these camps, we're going to make it difficult for you to trade with us, and that means that probably the international outrage about about these camps is is, is a lot less than it might have been um, if China if China wasn't such a rich country or or such an important trading partner. Um, so we've seen a lot of that, and um, uh, we've also one of the accusations that's been leveled against the camps is that um, that people from the camps are assigned to factories to work under conditions which are considered to be forced labour, and that's um, that means that any foreign a lot of foreign companies who are operating in China um, are possibly using forced labour from Xinjiang camps, which means that um, any companies that ocu- operate with the usual ethical responsibilities or whatever, um, they have to start asking themselves questions. Um, a lot of the big companies, um, German car makers, for example, have sort of said that they don't know anything about the camps, they don't use forced labor. Um, but we've saw recently uh, with cotton, uh, 20% of the world's cotton comes from Xinjiang and um, initiatives to to encourage the use of ethical cotton, cotton have said that um, there, there's problems with Xinjiang and this has prompted a huge backlash in China against these brands that, that use uh, supposedly use Xinjiang cotton or have said that they won't use Xinjiang cotton. So, um, so basically, China is adopting a very tough stance when it comes to how it responds internationally to criticism of the camps. And obviously, a lot of this is left to human rights groups to kind of speak out against because, as we've been kind of learning in the the Good Information Project the last few few weeks, because there is so much power in the trading relationships that countries have with China, um, a lot of the condemnations of of what's happening in in Xinjiang come with a lot of caveats. Um, what do human rights groups say about all all that's going on? Well, the human rights groups are, are very clear and, and they see this as um, they have actually driven the debate, uh, which has led to people starting talking about what's happening in Xinjiang as genocide. Um, now, this has been controversial because people tend to associate genocide with, um, with um, mass exterminations. 
Um, there's no evidence of mass exterminations in Xinjiang, but um, the broader definition of genocide used by the UN includes includes culture, destruction of a culture. And there's plenty of evidence that that's what's going on. So the human rights groups have been have have driven this debate, and now to the point that the the um, the U.S. has the U.S. government has officially described what's happening in in Xinjiang as genocide. Um, and the the human rights groups, they obviously, as you say, they've been operating very much in isolation. But there is growing um, opposition or growing concern about what's happening in Xinjiang. If you operate in Xinjiang now, you have to ask yourself a question: Do I do I operate? You know, we're possibly using forced labor and risk falling foul of the U.S., for example, um, which has imposed sanctions. And the EU has also imposed sanctions on uh, the U.S. and the EU have both imposed sanctions on Xinjiang. Uh, sorry, on, on China over Xinjiang. Um, so it's no longer you can no longer ignore what's happening in Xinjiang. You have to make a decision whether you're going to operate purely on commercial grounds, but ignore the human rights aspect or you're going to think that maybe the human rights aspect needs to be considered because it could affect my business in the US, for example, or it could affect my, my business with consumers in Europe who don't want goods that are made by forced labor in Xinjiang. So um, in a way, that, that push for information and for clarity and, um, and to expose what's happening in Xinjiang has actually been uh, very successful for bringing this to, to public attention, um, even though there's very little uh, access to real information in Xinjiang, as we've met, as we've said. Clifford, if brands did decide at a large scale to not operate in Xinjiang, would China's government change what they're saying about the province or change what they're doing in the province? It's a bit of a delicate balancing act for companies operating in Xinjiang. Um, we saw the big brands like Adidas and Nike when they when they said when that they had joined this initiative against uh, for ethical treatment ethical use of cotton and um they saw a big backlash in china they were taken off online shopping sites they were um you know people appearing on tv on youth tv programming or whatever wearing adidas and nike had their brands blurred out and and um it was it was a huge backlash social media was very very critical of them if they do start stop using xinjiang cotton um the the chinese can always hang, dangle this massive domestic market in front of it. Um, and so it makes a very difficult decision to make. However, um, it's, it's one of these things that basically no change is, is ever going to come about unless there is a broader support and unless the political activity is matched with economic power. So um, ultimately, it's, it's going to be a very difficult balancing act, I think, for companies to do it. But increasingly, with uh, with the attention, especially of the U.S., because the U.S. is now very firmly focused on this, um, and um, especially with the U.S. involved, I think it's going to become a bigger issue. Just back to the the Uyghur people themselves for a few moments. Obviously, it's very hard to to speak out or be activist, be active while still in the region. Have many left the region, and is there much global activism um, around their plight? There is. I mean, for, for many years, the prob one of the problems the Uyghurs had was that they didn't really have enough of a voice overseas. But since 2017, that's changed. I think a lot of people are, um, there's more coordinated opposition to what's happening there, especially as things have escalated since 2017. Um, previously, there was, uh, you know, there were, the big names would be like Rabia Kadir, who was a uh, a businesswoman in in Xinjiang province who 
uh, was critical of, of the government and she was kicked out. And um, but since since that, you know, with, with some big name um, people from the community leaving and organizing themselves in D in Washington, D.C., um, here in Germany as well, there are also um, organizations um, there are definitely growing voices and it's becoming more, um, it is becoming more coordinated. Yeah, because I think one of the fascinating aspects for me is how a lot of the the allegations kind of became uh, or stuck a bit more was because of the, those satellite reporting. So maybe you just might explain a bit more to our, our listeners exactly what the the researchers did uh, to figure out what was going on. Well, a lot of th- this was very interesting. It's just, um, um, this is one of the things that's a also very difficult to control because for example you know they can now using satellites you can you can they they isolated all these different facilities um around uh xinjiang which are which are just being built suddenly they also um got access to um to various procurement reports you know so building supplies um tenders for electric fences and uh you know there was Basically, a lot of very good research went into this to build this picture, um, even though they couldn't get into the place. And for you then, for your reporting, did that were you able to talk more easily to Uyghur people after that, or was it more difficult because obviously there was greater restrictions on your on your abilities as a journalist? Well, when I was in, um, I used to travel to China to to um, Xinjiang a lot when I lived in 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 Beijing, and. Um, and one of the things which struck me was that people were, um, they were obviously afraid to talk, but they were really keen to talk. Um, and you would have to arrange things very carefully in order to be able to talk to them. Um, and, and once you did get people talking, they, it was very difficult. They, they would just talk, they would keep talking. They had a lot to say. Um, and, um, and you did see on the ground how this, this whole campaign was, was playing out, even in, the, in about 2007, I was there and uh, in Kashgar, which is right in the border country and is a particularly restive part of the region, as they say. Um, and they were knocking down the old city and they built a, a, a large shopping mall. And China's argument is that human rights is all about um, development, that it's about having, um, uh, it's about getting out of poverty. Um, so that's that's usually the defense you get in China. But this clearly was about um, about more than that development is very much development with chinese characteristics and that means making the the province more accessible uh for han businesses and for uh to get um, natural resources out of xinjiang and for the, the the people that you were talking that you eventually did get did get to talk to what were their greatest fears um around what was happening to them the fears i saw mo- most people were uh worried about their children um the problem for them was they felt the absence of hope. They didn't, they didn't know what, what lay in store for their children. And that was the thing that everyone mentioned. And they, a lot of people um, felt that it was maybe too late for them, but they hoped that things would be different for their children. Um, and um, unfortunately, the way things have developed in the last couple of years, you've also seen that hope is, hope is under threat too. Um, so perhaps the international response, the national response is growing and possibly gives them more hope. Um, but they did want to, they wanted to maintain some vestige of, of their culture and they wanted to, 
Um, and, you know, for a lot of them, their religion was very important and they didn't want that to be eroded by, um, by what they saw as a communist party, uh, by communist party actions. Just final question, Clifford, on, on the back of obviously some really, um, you know, terrible images there of, of what you're hearing from, of what you've reported from people. Um, China obviously completely denies that there's any genocide, that there's any human rights difficulties in the in the area at all. You're mentioning there that there is more pressure on them now because of, you know, statements from America. We've seen the EU investment deal be put on ice um, because of the sanctions. From your experience of being there for 15 years, can you see a change of tack from China on it? Or, or what are they currently saying? Well, I think um, China is basically standing firm on this. They they have they want to do what they want to do in Xinjiang. They have a plan, and they're going to stick to it. And um, international pressure doesn't really work in this situation. Um, it it brings about more of an opposition. But I think China feels that it can kind of tough this one out. Um, that uh, if they just keep repeating the same message, the same denials, the same, uh, you know, firing it back, the, the reaction from China is often to fire it back at the U.S. and say, well, U.S. has civil rights. Um, you've, you, you know, they say the U.S. has got civil rights problems or they say that, well, why are you calling us to Germany, for example? They said, well, look, you had the Holocaust, you know. Um, so they basically, they're, they're actually being quite aggressive in their response. And they believe that um, eventually they will... Um, they will get what they want, which is to establish firmly the communist, really esta- firmly establish communist control in Xinjiang, and um, and allow it to to get access to the resources and to build this this uh, Silk Road, this new Silk Road trade route, um, to help it establish more and more influence in in Central Asia and and into Eastern Europe. So the the Chinese response has been um, has been quite aggressive, and they're basically standing firm. It's like I say that it's not a question that China is trying to, um, you know, to um, back down at all. It's very much saying that this is what we're doing is we are developing Xinjiang. We are bringing prosperity to the people um, and um, and we are stopping terrorism. And they that's basically they repeat that over and over again. So uh, their response is is fairly um, straightforward in that way. Yeah, and for our part from the Good Information Project, we have been on to the Chinese Embassy in Ireland for comments about various uh, articles that we've been putting up over the last four weeks. And one probably is particularly uh, useful to note here that they, when asked about satisfaction rates or polling about trust in the in the government, um, they told us that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. In Chinese, there is a similar saying that only the wearer of the shoes knows if they fit or not. The Chinese government enjoys the highest rate of satisfaction among Chinese people. Um, and so they went on to give us some stats from a, a Harvard University Kennedy School of Government uh, interview uh, survey, which interviewed over 30,000 people um, to say that the Chinese people's satisfaction with the, the Chinese government has exceeded 90% for many years. Um Clifford, thanks so much for joining us and explaining what is a obviously incredibly complicated and complex story in a very complicated and complex region. So thanks for doing such a good job uh, in that for us. Yeah, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Clifford for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan and the Good Information Project's Brian Whelan. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament. The European Parliament has no involvement in nor responsibility for the editorial content published by the project. 
If you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people will listen and love it too. The next topic for the Good Information Project is on housing. So you can get in touch with us in all the usual ways. You'll be able to find the details on the journal or the journal's Facebook page. Thank you and catch you next time.